This podcast is brought to you by Cyber Attacks Can Be Prevented. Checkpoint, you deserve the best security. News is shifting by the minute here. Yet another flare-up between Gaza and Israel this week. Very late Wednesday, early Thursday. More developments. We're going to try and follow that as we can. Just another Thursday in the Middle East. I'm Yunit Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. And I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian. This week in Paris... It's unholy, two Jews on the news from Keshet Podcasts. Yeah, I'm in Paris talking about uh, my book, and you, Yonit Levy, are in a very different situation. See, this is why life is, in, is unfair. Do you get that? You're in Paris. <laughs> I know. It <laughs> and sounds Israel awful. Is, and Israel is under fire. So Even that's just, saying just it the division loud, of labor between us. <laughs> I know. It's wrong on every level. Um, but you're there. I mean, we. I don't know. I think you're in the room as we speak where people go, the kind of sealed room, the sheltered room, secured room. Tell us. I mean, it's been a hell of a week for you and for <laughs> Listen, everyone else. Talk I, us through it. I, I know that you felt this when you were here in Israel in April, just how quickly the ground can shake beneath your feet, right? It's just a normal day, and then suddenly the world turns upside down. Uh, one minute life is normal, and the other minute you're like, okay, I'm not sending kids to school. I'm sitting next to a bomb shelter or a sealed room because there are rockets fired over Israel. That can happen during our recording as well, as I sit here uh, in Tel Aviv. Now, this is, we should say, been happening at a disturbing pace. Our podcast is two years old, and this is the third time we've been discussing flare-up between Gaza and Israel. This time, it's uh, called Operation Shield and Arrow. There's this, by the way, legend that it's a computer that picks out the names. It's not. It's uh, officers in the operation branch of the IDF. This is the name they picked this time. So let's talk a little bit about how we got here in the last three days, uh, maybe. Yeah, Uh, what happened? absolutely, yeah. Israel assassinated three operatives in the Palestinian Islamic Jihad. This, by the way, happened simultaneously with 40 aircrafts, part of the mission within 20 seconds. They were uh, hit in their homes. This was happening uh, in Israel about a few days after uh, the Palestinian Islamic Jihad fired 104 rockets to Israel in response for the death of a prisoner in the Israeli uh, prison called Khader Adnan, who died of a hunger strike. Um, So this was Israel's retaliation or initiative to assassinate these three operatives. And of course, then Israel waited for the response. And this is the bizarre part of this whole story, Jonathan. It took the Palestinian Islamic Jihad 35 hours to respond. Usually it takes a few hours, right, that the barrage of rockets is fired from Gaza to Israel. Here it took much longer, about a day and a half. The reason for that was first that the Islamic Jihad wanted to drag in Hamas into the fray. But the more hours passed, it was pretty clear that they have stumbled, I say, unfortunately, upon something of a new strategy, which is to realize that they don't need to shoot anything. And still the Israeli public will be sort of in this situation where they're very, very tense that something will be uh, shot at them. So this is what we saw in Israel for a day and a half. And then the Palestinian Islamic Jihad shot about about 400 rockets over Israel. Yesterday, there was talk of a ceasefire. Now it looks less likely because Israel assassinated yet another operative of the Palestinian Islamic Jihad. This is where we are, noontime Thursday. No, this is a very key point you're making here. And I, it was, I was picking it up in text messages I was getting from people in Israel, suggesting that in some ways it's the waiting that is worse because yep. you start imagining 
what are they going to do? Are they going to do something completely different, uh, some mm. other kind of tactic? And people, obviously, memories are still fresh of the Second Intifada nearly two decades ago, or yes, two decades ago, mm -hmm. in which it was suicide bombing, it was on buses, it was in pizzerias, it was in street markets. And so you suddenly think, hang on, this the fact that the bombs are not coming out of the sky, does that mean the response is going to be in some other more terrifying form? So it was the waiting yeah. that was scary. And in a strange way, you tell me, but I think in a strange way, almost it's wrong to use the word relief, but you know, the idea of, oh, okay, well, now it started, this is what it is. And that's partly because obviously Israel has the Iron Dome defense system, which does take most of these rockets out of the sky before they have a chance to land anywhere. And then also these numbers I was seeing, which were very striking, that of a sample set of 500 rockets fired by Palestinian Islamic Jihad, over 100 of them landed inside Gaza, one in mm -hmm. five. And it did make me wonder from their point of view, you know, whether they are going to at some point rethink this tactic, because if the ones that get over into Israeli airspace, as it were, get shot down, and one in five of them land on your own people, how effective a tactic is this? So I found myself wondering about that from their point of view. Well, first of all, I, their firepower is not the firepower of Hamas. We should say that. I mean, they they have rockets that can reach Tel Aviv. The quality of those rockets is not entirely impressive. As, as you said, a lot of them fell back into the Gaza Strip. But think of the effective, you said this, right? They managed to make Israelis anxious without pulling the trigger for the first day and a half. Just think how effective it is to send one rocket over Tel Aviv. Just one. It's not only paralyzing the southern part of Israel, it's paralyzing the central part of Israel. And that is something different. What the Palestinian Islamic Jihad know how to do is anti-fire, anti-tank missiles, and to shoot very close to the border. That is something that they are sadly effective in doing the rest less. But again, they managed to kind of, I'm not saying paralyze the whole country, but make a whole country pretty anxious uh, without firing anything. And then when we started firing, obviously we we know. This scenario we know, right? It's it's going to be over in a few hours, maybe a day or two, but you know, we see the end of it already, of this particular flare-up, not of, of the whole story. We should also say that in the first attack, there are 10 civilians killed, out of them four children and four women, most of them family members of the uh, Islamic Jihad operatives who were targeted. At this point, we are three days into this operation. There are reports of more than 20 Palestinians killed. The Israeli defense echelon has regretted this, both on record and off record. I need to tell you, Jonathan, that from what I have seen from first account uh, following the Israeli Air Force, particularly during the Operation Guardian of the Walls, the amount of effort put into not hurting civilians, the amount of operations that are aborted at the very last minute so as not to have this this uh, result, this obviously is a, is a tragic result of the war on terror. This is always one of the biggest disconnects between how things are seen inside Israel and how they're seen outside. Inside Israel, it's more or less a consensus that the military commanders go to huge lengths to minimize the number of civilian deaths. Outside the country, the second there is a single civilian death, and especially if that is a young person, a child, the narrative is that Israel has no disregard for civilian human life. And Israel's description of itself as a country, the most moral army in the world and purity of arms and so on, it's something which is seen strongly on the inside and the very opposite by its critics outside. But of course, politics never stops. And 
again, my it wasn't my first reaction, but my second or third reaction was to think, well, this changes the dynamic a bit. It's always awkward for people to go out on the streets protesting against their own government. I think it's been 19 weeks of continuous protests about the judicial changes, the mm -hmm. judicial coup, they call it. And I was thinking, does this, this mood of national unity against a an external enemy, does that change the dynamic? Does it mean that people feel they need to circle the wagons, rally around the leader? Um, how's that playing out? Well, there have been terror attacks against Israelis in the past couple of months, and that didn't change the course of the protests. So if Israel is relatively safe and we are actually seeing the beginning of the end of this particular cycle of violence, I think that we will still see protests. What I think should be said is that Netanyahu's government looks like it's in a better situation than it did a week ago. I remind you, I mentioned that those that barrage of rockets over Israel last week, and Ben Gvil, who's a very important part of Netanyahu's government, being very critical of the fact that Netanyahu isn't responding and began to boycott votes in the Knesset, saying this government is not is too lax in its response to rockets over Israel. And now Ben Gvil is saying, oh, look, they accepted my criticism and they started using targeted killings like I recommended, so I'm going to go back to vote with the government. So the, the, the government looks more stable than it did a week ago. I don't think the protests are going anywhere. That that I can say, you know, for now. All of this makes it absolutely the ideal moment to introduce our guest for this week, who follows all of this closely and with huge authority. Barack Ravid is the diplomatic correspondent while on news in Israel, the Middle East correspondent for Axios. I'm pretty sure that if we check the ratio of diplomatic scoops per journalist, he ranks very high on that list. His book, Trump's Peace, the Abraham Accords and the Reshaping of the Middle East, is now out in English, finally. It's an expanded, updated version that includes never-before-published stories on Biden's diplomacy in the Middle East. And we're so glad to have him on the podcast again. Barack, thanks for joining us. Hi, Onit. Hi, Jonathan. Thank you for having me. It's great to be back here. It's our pleasure. We have so much to talk about. And before we begin, we have to just, you know, give our listeners this disclaimer. We're recording this on Thursday morning. A lot can change every hour in the situation we're in uh, right now in this recent flare-up between the Palestinian Islamic Jihad and Israel. It's not over. I'm going to use your diplomatic chops to kind of ask you um how do you see this? I mean, on the one hand, Israel very proud of its opening strike. On the other hand, for almost three days, half the country sort of paralyzed and sitting next to or or in a, a bomb shelter. How do you read what's been going on in the past three days and where this is heading? Well, you know, if you take out all the noise and the spin around it, it's really Groundhog Day. Nothing really changed in Gaza in the last three days. The fact that Israel managed to, in its opening strike, to kill uh, three Islamic Jihad commanders is not going to change the situation for two million people uh, in Gaza and nine million people uh, in Israel. Mm -hmm. And uh, I fear that right now, as we do in every round of violence in Gaza, we are focusing on the, you know, those nuts and bolts of what's going on right now. And we miss the big picture that we might start talking about in a week when the dust settles. Mm -hmm. Big picture is what interests me a lot, actually. And I had the same feeling that this is always about that day, this 24-hour period. But nobody, Barak, I mean, you follow the diplomacy so closely. No one is tr truly talking about the 
genuine big picture, which would be actually, to, you know, negotiating to somehow get find kind of some kind of long term resolution for this, so that you don't have these periodic eruptions. I don't. I mean, you tell me, but do you hear anybody saying? you know, on the Washington side, on the Palestinian side, on the white Egyptian side, on the Israeli side, anybody saying, let's talk about how we avoid going round and round, as you said, this Groundhog Day thing again and again. I don't think that anybody who has direct influence on what's going on is engaged in that kind of a discussion. And the reason for it is that, you know, as I guess our listeners also uh, noticed, in the last few months, we have here a government that is not only the most radical right-wing government in the history of Israel, it is also extremely dysfunctional. And Gaza, until a few days ago, was a side issue for this government that, that got its term totally hijacked. It's actually hijacked its own term by dealing with the you know judicial overhaul. And I think that when other countries in the region and around the world, you know, for example, the Biden administration, the policy of the U.S. right now is only let's just have some quiet, okay? Nothing more than that. And I think the same goes for countries in the region like Egypt or the UAE or Jordan, and obviously for countries in Europe. So I think the expectations are extremely low and the the prospects of anything major happening are also uh, very low. But I think that when it comes to a ceasefire, everybody wants a ceasefire, but everybody isn't willing to do anything to get a ceasefire. <laughs> In the end, it will take maybe another 24 hours, another 48 hours. But, you know, we will just wake up in the morning and we will see that at four in the morning, there was a news flash on Al Jazeera that said that there's a ceasefire and then everybody will just stop until the next time. I just want to come back on this point about everybody wants this over with and it's just difficult to get to. I was wondering when it first started whether, on the one hand, the Israeli government just think, well, at least the country will is not now talking about judicial overhaul. They're <laughs> uniting behind us moments of national unity when people are literally under fire. And on the, on the uh, Gaza side, that Hamas is not brokenhearted to see a what is ultimately a rival faction, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, seeing its capacity, its leadership diminished, degraded and damaged. That actually, tell me if I'm wrong, but there was some mutual interest here in this happening the way it so far has happened. Uh, yeah, that's true. And I think it also shows again how Netanyahu and Hamas at the end of the day have a lot of mutual interest. Both of them don't really want a two-state solution. Both of them want some sort of a Houdna, long-term ceasefire, and both of them don't want uh, direct negotiations and are completely okay with talking to each other through a third party so that they will have a den deniability. But I think that w what we see is that, uh, because on the one hand, Israel says that Hamas is the sovereign in Gaza and is as a sovereign, it's responsible. On the other hand, it doesn't touch Hamas. And it says it says that it's focused right now on the Islamic Jihad. And even though Hamas announced yesterday, publicly, in a statement, that it is part of the fighting, Israeli officials started briefing reporters that, oh, you know, they're just saying that. They're not really involved. They're just saying that. 
And it was like this weird situation where Israel is doing the spinning for Hamas. And in Israeli public opinion, it, it, it was, it's an insane situation. And the problem with this is that if Hamas is not really held responsible, not really held accountable, then you're starting to deal every time with those, you know, splinter organizations and like, where is it going to end? I don't think it's sustainable. So I think that as we saw in previous rounds of violence in Gaza, once the fire stops, there is a need for a serious in-depth policy review in Israel because the current policy that is the same policy of the previous government, and the same policy of the one before, and the policy of the one before, is just seems just unsustainable. It does beg the question, first of all, is Israel being smart? I mean, obviously, it's easier for Israel to say, okay, it's the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, and we don't want to deal with Hamas. But in that sort of interim period, it's giving Hamas the quiet time and the immunity, really, to build its power until they're going to fight, Israel's going to fight Hamas again. This kind of begs the question, where is this all heading? I mean, you're, you're talking about this long-term a discussion, a strategic discussion. I mean, when you have governments in Israel that are just struggling to survive, whatever you think of them, obviously the last government, this government, they're all just about survival. How can you have that kind of long-term discussion about, you know, the solution for Gaza, if there is a solution? You're completely right. But the only problem is that when we don't have this uh, discussion, and when we don't make decisions, it's the people who suffer, the Israelis who live around Gaza. And right now, the Israelis who live around Gaza is the Israelis who live right on the border, in Sderot, in Ashdod, in Ashkelon, and in Tel Aviv. We're talking about millions of people. And we can't have this every few months. And if Netanyahu wants to have some sort of a coexistence with Hamas, no problem. That's a legitimate policy. But then go talk to Hamas directly and get an agreement, a sustainable long-term agreement. And don't just, you know, do this under the table stuff and then protect Hamas in the television studios. On the other hand, if you don't want to get a deal with Hamas, then take another policy. But we need to make decisions. I want to um, move on to the book, but ask you about a story that you broke this week, that all this in the background, and you you uh, reported that uh, U.S. Ambassador to Israel Tom Nyes will leave his post in August. So I kind of want to ask you what the real backstory there is. He says it's, it's personal issues, his family's living still in the United States. Is there a true story here that we are not aware of, and how unusual is it that the United States has not appointed an official to take his place? Uh, well, I have, to, I have to say that I don't have all the information about this thing. I, I'm no, I'm pretty confident in saying that there was no, because there are a lot of, um, theories that he was, uh, fired. Okay. Or he was, or that Knights was pushed out by the White House because of this or that reason. I, I think I've managed to confirm that that's not true. Mm-hmm. I think that the, the personal reasons and, you know, being away from the family is true. But I'm not sure, and this is now my opinion, not information. I think that, you know, if there was a different government in Israel, then Ambassador Nides would have managed to get over his, you know, feelings of, you know, missing his family. Mm-hmm. But I think that in the current political uh, environment in Israel, 
when you look at the government that half of its ministers you're not talking to because they're radical right-wing Jewish supremacists. And instead of having some sort of a positive agenda or trying to promote peace between Israel and Saudi Arabia, you're dealing with how do you prevent Israel from becoming a dictatorship, you know, I think that's a bit of a downer. Uh, so uh, I guess that if the, the political conditions were different here, Nides would find the inner strength to stay here. Interesting. I'm imagining him writing the diplomatic cable back to Washington saying, it's a bit of a downer. <laughs> I, need to, I, need, I need to come home. Well, I think, by the way, I think that if he writes that cable, I think he would use a lot the F word writing this cable. <laughs> and you know, Nights was asked several times in the last few months, how is he doing here in Israel? So he said to several people, you know, I'm not going to be the longest serving ambassador uh, in Israel. And uh, I think that uh, we saw that this projection uh, was pretty accurate. Yeah. I want to uh, talk about your book, which I read in Hebrew and is excellent, uh, is now coming out in English, Trump's Peace, the Abraham Accords and the Reshaping of the Middle East. Uh, it was first published in Hebrew in 2021. I wonder if when you wrote it, I'm just thinking to myself, did you think that A, Donald Trump will be seeking re-election and B, so will Joe Biden. I mean, it's just, it's pretty amazing that we're still, we're, we're back in this round again. But it, one thing that's interesting is that you expanded it for kind of to, to talk about how the Biden administration dealt with the Abraham Accords and expanding them, which is really interesting because it wasn't easy for them to pick up where Trump left off. I mean, it's something to kind of focus on, that decision to continue where, where he started. Yeah. First, your first question, I was sure a million percent that Donald Trump will return. Will, will return and try to run again for president. There's no other option for Donald J. Trump other than running again. Biden, I got to tell you, I'm very surprised. Okay. Very, very surprised. I didn't think we'll have a you know, rerun of 2020. About the Biden administration and the Abraham Accords, it's actually, it's kind of a funny story because when the Abraham Accords were announced, Joe Biden as a candidate, put out a statement of support a few minutes after the accords were were announced and when he when he was sworn in and president and assumed office you know he said and his people said that that's the only part of Donald Trump's legacy that they're not going to roll back that's going to continue and they actually did it you know they didn't roll back for example the F35 deal with the UAE they didn't roll back the um, western sahara recognition. They didn't roll back the aid package to Sudan until, you know, there was the coup in Sudan. And so they, they continued on doing it. And they said that they support the Abraham Accords. But in the first few months of the administration, they couldn't utter the words Abraham Accords. They called them, they called it the normalization process, the normalization agreements, uh, they used every word possible in public not to say it. And then the one year anniversary, it's like somebody switched on the lights and they started saying Abraham Accords. <laughs> and since then, they're saying Abraham Accords. And since then, they're also, I think, pushing this thing much more seriously than they did before. I think that in the first few months, they were very hesitant about what to do with, with this thing. By the way, the Israeli government 
that was led back then by Naftali Bennett had the same problem. Hmm. I think that both sides, both the White House and the Bennett government were, didn't know how to exactly deal with the legacies of the predecessors. I mean, the one way for Biden to deal with the fact that it's painful to admit this piece of the legacy of his predecessor, Donald Trump, would be for him to, pardon the pun, Trump it, you know, uh, surpass it. And there's been a lot of talk recently of the big one, which would be an accord with Saudi Arabia. Yes. Um, and that's the sort of elusive prize, especially now we're in a world where no one thinks there's any kind of deal to be done right now with the Palestinians. What's your read of that? Is that just still a mirage in the desert, as it were? Or is that real? Is that possible? Even in the timeline of the Biden administration, which has only got, you know, another 18 months till its election time? In one word, yes. Mm -hmm. uh, in a few words, it's definitely possible. More broadly... I thought um, you were going to say in one word, yes. You know, in uh, many words, you're crazy if you think it's yes. I'm kidding. Okay. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I, no, no. I really believe that it's okay. possible. With okay? this government I really and in believe this, that in it's this possible. climate? With, wow. this okay. with this government, because it's not about Israel. That's the thing. It's not about Israel. It's about Saudi-Israeli normalization is about U.S.-Saudi normalization. Mm -hmm. And this is why, not again, it's not all about Biden making decisions, but it's mostly about Biden making decisions. And you know, the, in the first few months of the administration, when it was, when he started to doing stuff on the Abraham Accords, they used to say that all the accords that were achieved by Trump were, you know, it was great. It was good, but it was, you know, low hanging fruit. This is how they used to, <laughs> they called it. And, you know, we, we're like two years, more than two years in, almost three years in. And it's either there are no other low hanging fruit out there or it's harder than they thought. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's one of the things that the administration discovers because in October 2021, I write in, my, in the book, John Finer, the Deputy National Security Advisor, was sent to Mauritania, okay, to try and get a normalization agreement between Mauritania and Israel. And with all due respect, Mauritania is kind of a low-hanging fruit, you know, without offending Mauritania. And he couldn't do it. He couldn't do it because, again, it's not that simple. You need to build trust. You need to build relationships. You need to be ready to take your hand into your pocket as the president of the United States and put tangible stuff on the table. And if it did not work with Mauritania, it won't work with Saudi Arabia without Biden being ready to take out of his pocket tangible deliverables to the Saudis. And it's obviously normalizing MBS, which Biden started to do. We remember the fist bump, fist bump in Jeddah, but that's not enough. It means that MBS will have to come to the White House and have a meeting in the Oval Office, as hard as it might be. There are a lot of people around the world. Each of us have this in his, I don't know, workplace, that there are people that no. we don't like, no. but we need to work that with them. No, that doesn't exist. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, you need, you get along with everybody. <laughs> I'm talking about myself. <laughs> but, but, you know, you sometimes you have people you don't like, you need to work with them. It's the same thing. And especially when you're the president of the United States, and that's the guy 
that like him or not, going to be the leader of Saudi Arabia for another 50 years. Although I don't so know about your I, workplace, um, Barak, but I, I doubt in the Axios newsroom, there's somebody who put to death a dissident using a bone saw to hack his body to pieces. I mean, this is, it is such a taboo to imagine MBS in the White House with the kind of blood he's got on his hands. In just in terms of Washington, you know, Khashoggi was, Jamal Khashoggi, the person I'm talking about, was a contributor to the Washington Post. That's going to be a very big hurdle for Joe Biden to jump, no? Yeah, I, I agree. It's not easy. There's a political price to pay for it. Okay, that's all true. I'm just saying that the Democrats are not going to be in the White House forever. And the, the next Republican president, this is going to be one of the first things that he's going to do. And it's going to be a huge diplomatic achievement. It's going to end the Israeli-Arab conflict. Okay? Because right after Saudi Arabia, we'll get Indonesia. We'll get Malaysia. We'll get Oman. We'll get Qatar. We get a lot of other Muslim and Arab countries. So Joe Biden has to ask himself, and the Democrats in general have to ask themselves, are we ready not to forget what happened with, with Jamal Khashoggi, not to think that MBS is Mother Teresa, not to want to hug him and kiss him? No. But are we ready to work with him in order to get something that at the end of the day is in our national security interests? I don't know a lot of serious people in Washington who disagree that peace between Israel and Saudi Arabia is not in the U.S. national security interest, okay? And obviously, any deal between Israel and Saudi Arabia and the U.S., that most of it will be between Saudi Arabia and the U.S., will have a Palestinian component. And if the Democrats care about the Palestinians, they should want to be the ones to do it because the Republicans would just take whatever Netanyahu offers, okay, even if it's a nothing burger. Um, but the Democrats, I think, are able to get something that is more tangible, more real, and more meaningful in the long term in the Israeli-Palestinian context. So how would they look like ideally? If you're saying there is a possibility for this normalization with Saudi Arabia. Okay, so the Biden administration, a penny needs to drop. MBS needs to be invited to the White House. Israel needs to do what with the Palestinians? And what needs to happen? What are the you know players on the board? How do they need to move for this to actually happen in the time left for the Biden administration now? I actually think that one of the, the things that are most problematic have to do with the Saudi demand to get legitimacy for a nuclear in-house nuclear program, especially that the Saudis want to be able to enrich uranium in Saudi Arabia, even if they're not going to actually do it. Mm -hmm. They want to get an okay from the U.S. to do it. And I think that this is something that is creates a lot of concern in Israel, obviously in the U.S. too. I think that's one of the biggest hurdles right now, okay, other than, again, on the practical level, not the more symbolic political stuff like inviting MBS to Washington. And Israel will have to do something on the Palestinians, which I think, I think the Saudis would want to see Israel doing something that has to do with Jerusalem and the holy sites in Jerusalem 
for example, to agree to some kind of a return of Palestinian presence, official presence in East Jerusalem. This government obviously right now will never do it. But um, I tend to think that if Netanyahu feels that he can get a deal with Saudi Arabia, that's something that he will be willing to try and change his government for such a thing. Because Netanyahu, you have to remember, always has this threat that his legacy is not going to be the protector of Israel and the one who brought peace with the Arabs, but this prime minister who uh, killed Israeli democracy and went to prison. So I think that, let's say, if such a scenario happens, he will be in a dramatic decision point regarding his legacy. And if he decides to take the route towards the Saudis and not towards any liberal country, then it will also put the Israeli opposition in a serious, serious, serious dilemma on what to do. Because if peace with Saudi Arabia will be on the table, I think that both Benny Gantz and Yair Lapid will have a real hard time saying, oh, no, 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 we're, you know, we're, we don't care. We're not going to save this guy. We're not going to join the government. So, again, it's not going to happen tomorrow. It's not going to happen next month. But can it happen by the U.S. election? I think it can. It's amazing. The um, price last time when this for the Abraham Accords was for Netanyahu to drop what was then talked about as the signature policy, which was annexation of the West Bank. That was the quid pro quo. Is there any, I, I, obviously it wouldn't be direct because you can't imagine Saudi Arabia saying, you know, we are such purists for constitutional democratic norms. We demand you drop your change in the, you know, judicial system. But will the Americans effectively say, look, that's the deal here. You've got to back down on the judicial reforms, which we've publicly said we don't like. And then we make the make smooth the path and just throw in where it fits in the fact that we saw Saudi Arabia cozying up with Iran recently. And that, you know, yeah. the one thing that's gone through Netanyahu's whole career is warning that, you know, Iran, 40 years is that Iran is untouchable and a terrible threat. So just crunch those two things together. And then I know okay. we need to move on. Okay. First about Saudi Arabia and Iran. I don't think it has anything to do with Israel. It has to do with the Saudis wanting to de-escalate in the region in order to be able to focus on their 2030 vision. MBS needs to change his economy, to change the country, to get a lot of revenue, and not to have a war. And I think that that's what it's about. About a deal on the judicial reform, yeah, I guess that's that's totally possible. But, you know, when you said it's not that the Saudis care about the strength of Israel's democratic institutions. But they do. And they do because the Saudis see Israel, not only the Saudis, a lot of other Arab countries see Israel as a stabilizing factor in the region, as a country that, you know, you can count on its institutions, on its government, and that it will be stable, okay? And what they saw in the last four months is something that I heard from Arab officials that called me and said, so what's going on out there with this Jewish spring? <laughs> okay. And they didn't, and they didn't say it in the, in, in, in the good way. Mm. Okay. Uh, because they saw what they saw in Israel resonated with them to what happened in the Arab world in 2011. 
And, you know, for them, it was a very bad thing. So it's not that they care if we're a democracy or not a democracy, but they care if Israel is stable or not. Because if Israel is unstable and it's seen from the outside as weak and as a disintegrating society, that hurts their national security interests. So I think that if you go today to MBS and, and ask them, what do you think about this judicial reform in Israel? Do you support <laughs> it or not? He would tell you, I wish they would just stop it because it's just ruining a lot of the things that we're trying to build here. Okay? So in a weird way, you have the Saudis also in the camp of those countries that say, you know, just, you know, enough with this uh, insanity. Let's just go back to dealing with the important stuff. Amazing. Uh, yeah, we mentioned Tom Nyes. I mean, that's what he basically said. And he said it out loud, right? I can't. I told Netanyahu, I can't help you with the things that are important to you, i.e. Saudi Arabia and Iran, if your backyard is on fire. I want to ask, because we should remind our listeners that, that your book also brought these explosive quotes uh, from a conversation, a few conversations that you had with Donald Trump. Uh, and it kind of exposed what he really thinks about Netanyahu. You know, before you came along, we thought they were uh, BFFs. Not really. Uh, I will remind uh, our listeners yeah. of, uh, I, my mother listens to this, so I'm not going to read out the whole quote. He was very disappointed that Netanyahu then congratulated Joe Biden for actually winning the presidency. And he said to you, it's a terrible personal betrayal. I haven't spoken to him since. F him. Jonathan, if you want to give out the whole quote, that's yeah. fine. I don't do these kinds of things. Now, <laughs> what I'm wondering is, if indeed Trump does return to the White House, and indeed Netanyahu is still a prime minister, does this leave a residue at all? Or will they are they two people who can forgive and forget? Uh, first, an amazing trivia detail. Since November 2020, Netanyahu and Trump did not speak at all. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was sure that after Trump's quotes would be published, then Netanyahu would make any effort to try and like reach out and, you know, solve that. Wow. No, there was no connection. On the other hand, if Trump's the nominee, I have no doubt that very, very quickly they'll patch things up because in both of their political interests, Trump needs Netanyahu for the evangelical base. Netanyahu needs Trump for his base. So, you know, Netanyahu will come to Trump Tower, to Mar-a-Lago. He'll kiss the ring and everything will be fine again until it's not. But I think they'll try and patch things up pretty quickly because both of them know how the other is, you know, can benefit them politically. <laughs> Amazing. We should say, by the way, that you are um, moving to Washington, Barack. Is it something we said? Do we do anything to upset you? <laughs> um, we're, we're losing the best diplomatic correspondent to Axios. You're going to report on uh, the Biden administration, national security, foreign policy. This is happening very soon, no? Yeah, it's happening. Um, we booked a flight uh, for me and my family for August 2nd. Wow. So it's really like in like two minutes and I'm going in like two weeks to Washington to try and find an apartment. E easier uh, than Tel Aviv, I can assume. Say. Me. I, I don't know. Actually, I don't know. I mean, Adi, my wife tasked me with finding an apartment and said, you're responsible for <laughs> this. And, you know, whatever you decide is fine with me. Uh, we'll see about that. It will be a, definitely be an experience to cover, you know, U.S. politics and to like cover Washington 
for an American media outlet. I'm not sure how to do it. I hope I'll manage to do it. It will be an exciting experience for sure. Well, you'll still have to come on Unholy, Barack. That is essential. No problem. That's part of the deal. The book is Trump's Peace, the Abraham Accords and the Reshaping of the Middle East. And it is out now in English. Barack Ravid, so good to have you on Unholy as you pack your bags and head across the Atlantic. <laughs> Thank you so much. And I, and I just want to say to, to our listeners that this book was an experience because I, I published it independently. One of the reasons was that a lot of the conservative publishers in the U.S. said the book wasn't pro-Trump enough, and a lot of the liberal publishers in the U.S. said it wasn't anti-Trump <laughs> enough. And I just thought that a factual book that actually says what happens is, you know, will be good, but apparently it's not the right thing to go. So I just published it independently. So if any of our listeners right now liked what they heard in the last 30 minutes and are interested in what I do, I urge them to go on Amazon and order the book and afterwards tell me what they thought. And we also put a link in the show notes so to make it easier. Barack, always such a pleasure. Thank you so much for talking to us. Thanks, Yonit. Thank you, Jonathan. It was great. Thank you. Always so good to hear from Barack Ravid, hugely well-informed, incredible sources. No wonder Axios are bringing him to Washington. I was struck by many things he said, but the one that leapt out is this idea that Saudi Arabia itself fears the judicial overhaul. It doesn't like it. And describing the protests of these last uh, 19, 20 weeks as the Jewish spring, I mean, it's going to be another one of those races between you and me. Who uses that first? Um, I just think that's a, a really striking thought. They just want stability and they don't like Netanyahu unsettling it. And so they're with all the democratic world in looking on with dismay at these changes. That's the difference between you and me. You're thinking who's going to use it first. I'm just thinking I'm printing this on a T-shirt and sending it to you. Yeah. I <laughs> the mean, Jewish spring. <laughs> people might think it's a new brand of kosher mineral water. That's the only problem. <laughs> um, but no, I'm very, very struck by that. Now, we should do some of our usual business of handing out awards. And you, Yoni, have had such a week and quite a week that I'm going to relieve you of that duty. Uh, because you're a those generous of us who are, person. You're, you're the, a great friend. <laughs> <laughs> because those it's the least I can do. Those of us who are here in Paris banging on about their own book to various <laughs> publishers and so on and booksellers, I've had a little bit more time than you have and headspace. In fact, I thought our – well, let's start with our chutzpah of the week because it is glaring. Our mention of the week will be much more closer to where I am now in France. But for chutzpah of the week, can there really be any rival to the former president – we talked about him with Barat Ravid – Donald Trump, who this week was found liable in a civil action – of uh, sexual assault against magazine writer E. Jean Carroll. This goes back a long time. She says in court that he had uh, sexually assaulted her. In fact, she made a claim of rape as well. And a New York jury found that the uh, she, he was indeed liable, that's the word they use rather than guilty because it's civil, of not the rape charge, but the sexual assault charge, and then of defaming her by denying it afterwards. And the court ordered $5 million in damages be paid to her. The chutzpah comes in what Donald Trump has said afterwards, which is 
that this is all just a partisan witch hunt, when in fact it's, of course, a legal process, that this is just political, that he has never met this woman, he doesn't know who she is. There's photographs of them uh, with meeting each other. And the key moment for me that makes this just rank chutzpah is having said in the course of the trial in a video deposition that, and this is such a crude thing of him to, such an appalling thing for him to have said when the issue is sexual assault, he said, she's not my type. Um, that was his line of defence. He even said to one of the lawyers in the courtroom, you're not my type either. I mean, it is just flesh crawling, but the his de- sort of defence, as it were, rested on this claim of his that she was not his type. He was then shown a photograph and was asked to identify one of the women in the photograph. And he said, that's my second wife, Marla Maples, who obviously he must have at some point in his life found attractive because he married her. And the court had to then say, uh, Mr. Trump, that's actually not your wife, Marla Maples. That is the woman who's suing you. That is E. Jean Carroll. So he'd said that she wasn't his type, and yet he confused her with his own second wife. For all the different things he said, I think a not much competition for Donald Trump as our chutzpah of the week. I think he may have won that award before. Mm, once or twice. Once or once twice. Once or twice. Um, so a chutzpah for him. But a much more uh, uplifting story uh, here in France. Uh, this week, French television aired a documentary it was just on Monday evening, about a man called Erich Schwamm, not himself French, actually Austrian, who died a couple of years ago, age 90, having left what was then known only as a large amount of money to the village that saved his family from the Nazi occupiers, the village of Le Chambon-Solignon in southeast France, protected thousands of Jews and had long acquired a reputation, actually, as a kind of refuge from persecution. Erich Schwamm uh, was hidden there with his family in 1943 and left in his will. He made, uh, you know, a whole uh, life for himself afterwards. He left in his will the sum of $2 million, uh, slightly more than, to that village in thanks to the town. So I think to Erich Schwamm posthumously, but to the town itself uh, for what they did, shielding and saving those people here in France, uh, I think they can be our collective mensch of the week. Agreed. And you also mensch of the week for taking this load uh, off my shoulders. We should mention, since I know that you're a Eurovision fan, I really can see you with your pom-poms and your fluorescent pink (laughs) <laughs> leggings sitting and watching the Eurovision, knowing all the songs by heart. We should mention the Israeli representative, Noah Kiel. I think she's only 22 years old and she will um, be on stage in Liverpool. The Eurovision finals on Saturday, I believe. And um, so that's, uh, let's uh, keep our fingers crossed for her. Uh, yeah, I mean, the UK show. having hosted two consecutive weeks of high camp pageantry. Last week was the coronation. This week, Eurovision. City of Liverpool, by all accounts, doing a brilliant job of hosting everyone. There have been these two semi-finals, big final coming. That just gets sort of bigger and bigger. And that will be a huge thing. And I will be there watching it. Uh, the scoring and all the politics of the scoring we might talk about next we week. Might. If you we have might. enjoyed this pageantry and procession of Unholy, do spread the word. Uh, you can do that on our Facebook page and on Instagram at Unholy Podcast and all the other ways, analog, digital, whichever way you like. And if you do, we promise not to sing. And also we'll say our thank yous to Gaia Glazer, Omer Primat, Rom Atik, and Yair Bashan. We shall meet next week. Jonathan. 
See you then and stay safe. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by Cyber Attacks Can Be Prevented. Checkpoint. You deserve the best security.